everyone, and welcome to the 188th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas and literature of Ayn Rand in fun, unconventional ways, including music and animated videos and graphic novels. Uh, today we are joined by Polina uh, Pompliano. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or YouTube, you can use the comment section to type in your questions and we'll get to as many of them as we can. But I have to warn you, I really like this book, so I have a lot of questions <laughs> of my own. Uh, Paulina Pompliano is the founder of The Profile, a media organization that studies successful people and companies in business, tech, sports, and entertainment. In her new book, Hidden Genius, The Secret Ways of Thinking That Power the World's Most Successful People, Paulina discusses the simple and actionable habits that have helped some of the most recognizable people in the world achieve their success. Previously, she spent five years at Fortune, where she wrote more than 1,300 articles, interviewing some of the most influential dealmakers, including Melinda Gates, Steve Case, and Steve Schwartzman. Polina, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. So our audience always likes to learn a bit about our guests' origin stories. And one aspect of yours that stood out to me was that your family emigrated from Bulgaria um, to America when you were eight. I'm guessing you were born a couple of years before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Did your parents share any stories uh, about what life was like under communist rule? Yeah. So uh, actually, I was born in 91, so a few years after. But <laughs> both of my parents, uh, you know, grew up in it. Uh, and my dad's side in particular was very radically outspoken against communism in a time when it wasn't allowed to be outspoken about communism. So a lot of, you know, his, my dad's uncles, grandfathers, cousins uh, were sent to labor camps, to prisons, some were killed for just the way they thought uh, um, or, or what they said in some uh, instances. So when communism fell, my dad was in his mid-20s and um, I was born, but he still went out in the streets and participated in these like pro-democracy um, protests and which, you know, turned into these crazy situations where the police were beating them up with batons and tear gassing and all this stuff. Um, so when I asked him why, like you had a young kid, why, why were you doing this? It was dangerous. And he said that basically what the young people in Bulgaria wanted was this democracy that they saw in America. But they didn't quite understand what that was. So the second, so when they thought, you know, this was a democratic government, the government used their lack of information against them to manipulate them and be like, look, this is democracy. And my dad was like, it wasn't democracy. It was just another form of oppression. So my dad became really disillusioned with Bulgaria as a whole. And really, really his dream was to move to the United States. So every year he applied for a green card lottery. Um, and it was something that I think George Bush Sr. put into effect to kind of diversify. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
um, to that's right, to diversify the what kind of immigrants were coming to the U.S. because it was largely Canada and Mexico and they wanted more uh, from different countries. So there were 55,000, I think, lottery uh, visas or green cards per year. And each, like Europe had um, some, Asia had some, Africa had some. And my dad kept applying and in 1999 we won and so it took about a year to interview with the embassy and all that stuff. And we ended up moving to Atlanta, Georgia in 2000. Wow. So um, given your father's experience and knowing a little bit about it, uh, did that at all prime you for your Ayn Rand journey? Because I understand <laughs> you read Atlas Shrugged uh, in high school and yeah. um, that the Playboy interview is, is your <laughs> favorite. And we talked about how uh, definitely We the Living needs to be on your reading list. But yeah. um, tell a little bit about what the the stories and those ideas meant to you or, or, or how you took them in at the time. Yeah, well, it was so interesting because I, I, I really didn't know anything about Rand or the um, or, or Atlas Shrugged when I read it. But after I read it, we read it over the summer and then we came back to school to talk about it in our literature class. And uh, I remember the teacher being like, well, this is a very controversial book and many controversial ideas. And I was like, why? I, I genuinely <laughs> didn't know why it was controversial because to me, it was like my family lived through <laughs> something very similar right exactly we know what that's like and and for example my dad's whole um dream was to come to the united states and like uh start a business like he thought that that was the highest form of uh democracy and like what you could do with your life is be a productive member of society so i just genuinely didn't understand why it was controversial and then when i kind of heard and i was like oh okay I think that people who have never lived under communism and have only studied the um, theoretical aspect of it have a very different view from the people who actually lived there. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing was in your book, you describe how, you know, in Georgia and not having a great grasp of the language um, that you then um, when you moved again, you wanted to conform. And of course, Ayn Rand's one of her central themes is about individualism certainly that is uh the, the one of the themes of the fountainhead right that mm -hmm. that you don't need to conform to uh other people's taste so tell a little bit about how those barriers affected in the way you um interacted with others and how it informed how you you saw yourself it is very interesting because i think a lot of kids of immigrants or kids who immigrated here uh, at a young age would understand this, uh, which is that you, um, you come to the United States, all of a sudden you're different. You're like the new kid. You have, you do strange things. For example, I was eating my food with a fork and a knife because that's how you eat food. But that I didn't realize in America, you just eat pizza with your hands uh, like a savage. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, and there were all these things like we were playing kickball. I didn't know what kickball was or, or basic cultural differences that I had to get accustomed to. But when you're a kid, all you want to do is fit in. I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to be the new kid at school, all this stuff. So I was like, how can I become the most American? And as a kid, you learn quickly. I learned pretty quickly the language and the cultural norms. So I was able to 
become like everybody else. Uh, but at a certain point, you're just like everybody else and you have no opinion and it becomes really lonely because inside you believe one thing, but then outwardly you're like, oh, I don't know, whatever you think. And, and you have no true opinion. It wasn't until I moved to New York, which I know Rand also likes, <laughs> um, <laughs> that it's truly the one place where I've seen individualism it like celebrated and um on the subway walking down the street you just like see so many different types of people and it becomes um kind of a bad thing if you're just conforming and in its individualism celebrated so uh i think here i really really found my voice and then working in journalism at fortune you have to find a voice and develop your own voice so that really helped the next stage, I think, that prepared you for the path that you're on now was a little trouble that you had in history class. Um, yeah. And yeah. how, so t- talk about that. Okay. So I, history was my hardest, most difficult subject in school because I was really bad at remembering and memorizing dates, places, historical events. I just, it, it, it's history, a lot happened in history. <laughs> so, um, so then at one point, I think it was uh, in my European history class, we were talking about the French Revolution. And for some reason, the French Revolution, I was like, oh, this is a fascinating story. So when I was studying for the test, I realized that if I could create a story with all these different characters, like Marie Antoinette, I could emotionally empathize with them. So I was like, okay, Marie Antoinette was this young queen. She uh, became the symbol of excess and and the the commoners, the people hated her. And I understand why, but then she, you know, was so young that she even know what was happening to her. Um, And then like, as she was walking to her death to the guillotine, what was she thinking? She had a young son, all these things. Like, did she feel humiliated? The second that I was able to say what were the emotions that this person was feeling, I was able to put myself in their shoes and I was able to remember it more. So then it's the first time that I thought of this as like people-focused learning. So you're not just learning history or just dates and places and whatever happened, but you're really learning about the people themselves. So if the person is at the center of any story or any learning pursuit, stories trigger emotion and emotion is what triggers memory. When somebody asks you, where were you on 9-11, you know exactly where you were and what you were doing on September 11th because it was such a emotionally charged situation. So you kind of like remember the things around the emotion and that's how uh, I came across people focused learning. Interesting. All right. Well, then you took that um, into various jobs, including the five and a half years that you spent Mm -hmm. at Fortune Magazine. Um, Given your focus on tech startups and venture capital, you were no stranger to the statistics showing that the overwhelming majority of new startups uh, fail within a few years of of being started. So what gave you the the courage and the the confidence to to go off on your own, to leave this big brand uh, media Uh, outlet and start the profile. Yeah. So uh, like you and I were chatting uh, just for a few minutes before the interview, I told you how, you know, like coming to the U.S. 
was probably the hardest thing that my family has done in terms of we had no family here, we had no money, no language, nothing in the beginning. And then we had to build it all up. The reason that I'm not afraid of uncertainty as much as other people who haven't had that kind of experience is because I know that, you know, even if something's taken completely taken from you, you have the skills necessary to rebuild in whatever sense. So, um, so when I was thinking about leaving Fortune, obviously I was nervous because I was like, oh man, you know, uh, five and a half years, I'm a big deal now. I'm an editor at Fortune Magazine until you realize you could get fired, laid off, et cetera, and that could be taken from you. Um, so in 2020, as I was like making a pro and con list of should I stay or should I go, on my con list were things like that could happen, right? So if I leave and start my own company, um, it's we're at the tail end of a 10 year cycle. Usually there's a recession. Am I going to quit my job and start something in, in the beginning of a recession is and, and all these things. And then the one thing that I didn't account for, cause nobody could, it was a global pandemic. <laughs> and so it just taught me like, you can plan for everything. You can try to look around the corner, but there's always going to be something uncertain that hits you in the face and you just have to deal with it. Um, and, and you don't know how you'll react until you're in the moment. So like you said, uh, you know, as a child, I was probably, uh, I probably saw more things than most kids who are very sheltered. So that helped me um, kind of understand like the world's an unpredictable place and sink or swim and you're going to have to do it. And uh, I didn't know if it was going to work out, but what I did know was that I'm the type of person that when I pour my entire focus and energy into something, I will make it work. So even if it wasn't that, even if I failed miserably, I will, I know that I would learn. And even if I had to go back and take a full-time job at a media company somewhere, I would have the skills to get hired again. Interesting. Um, So in an age where everything is increasingly politicized and there's pressure to conform to one political tribe or another. Certainly we saw that during COVID, you know, um, a lot of uh, intolerance for for people that took dissenting views on on some of the interventions. uh, And so many media projects have succumbed to the allure of confirming or even pandering to the biases of their audiences. A few outlets, I think the free press is, is one of them, managed to maintain independence. Um, Has that been a challenge or an issue for what you do at the profile? So it it hasn't. And I think it hasn't because when I started, I was very clear that this wouldn't be like a a political thing. Um, I, when I curate profiles, like you said, it's tech, media, sports, across every industry, pretty much. I very rarely include um, profiles of political candidates because I find that so many of them are so slanted. And it's like, well, <laughs> this isn't actually great journalism because it's not objective. Mm-hmm. And you're not even trying to be objective. It's just like, here's what I think. And I'm going to kind of hide behind facts. It, it's not like that. Um, so I avoid that. I avoid political candidate profiles. But also on top of that, because I write something at the top of every newsletter that's more like personal or what I think, um, I like, (laughs) in a weird way, 
throwing things in where people, right when they thought they knew where I lean or how I, whatever, how I think, I throw something in and they're like, oh, wait a second. That doesn't <laughs> conform to what I thought she believed. And I think part of it is like, I, I genuinely don't think that every person's belief system um, falls into a two-party <laughs> political whatever world. Uh, in Europe, there's like 17 different political parties. So it's very hard to be like, I'm this or I'm that. And here there's two mm. major ones. Um, and people have contorted themselves into fitting into one bucket. Box, and so yeah. You, yeah, you know exactly who they are when they open their mouth. And I think thanks to my experiences in Bulgaria and Georgia and in New York, you, you can't do that to me. And I, I like that. I like it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I read the book. I was like, I have no idea what, <laughs> what this person's political views are. And I don't really care because I got a lot out of the book, um, including uh, your first chapter, which dealt with one of my favorite topics, which is creativity. You write that for centuries. Uh, we've treated creativity as something outside of our control. It's a talent. It's a gift. Uh, it's a muse. But uh, you describe it as a skill that can be learned. How so? Yeah. Um, so I do. I, I I didn't know this when I went into writing the book. But uh, as I was doing more research, I was like, wow, like a lot of these words refer to something outside of the person's control. It was like, you know, this is a gift given to you by the muses, which has this divine uh, aspect to it. But in in reality, um, creativity, I think, is a skill that can be developed. Some people aren't, they say they're not creative, but I think they're not creative because they haven't put energy into doing that. Um, when I was writing the book, I couldn't just wait for the muses because I had to have like butt in chair writing every day or otherwise had a deadline, I would miss right? the deadline. <laughs> exactly. Um, so my favorite example of this is uh, there's this chef called Grant Ackett's and he has this really innovative um, restaurant called the Linea in Chicago. And he's like at the forefront of innovation and it's so interesting and he surprises um, the guests with all these things. So he was, the, the restaurant was voted like, you know, number one restaurant in the world. He was riding high. And then all of a sudden he was diagnosed with stage four tongue cancer. And for a chef, that is a death sentence. Like, how can you be an innovative chef if you can't taste? And what he learned, I was watching this documentary and he was like, what people don't realize is that uh, he was like, taste isn't here, it's here. And he points to his head. So the whole idea is that actually taste is developed by your vision and your smell much more so than your taste buds on your tongue. And he, ironically enough, when he was going through chemo and he was going through treatment and completely lost his, um, um, his taste buds, he says that was the singular most creative time in his life because he was able to reason and think into creativity more so than just waiting for the muses so it's like it's a creative process rooted in logic which i love and he created all sorts of different techniques to do this but um the uh the one thing that he did uh he was like basically i looked i wanted the the uh guest to come in and look at a strawberry eat it and it's actually a tomato. So he's like using deception, your eyes are failing your uh, taste and like all this stuff. It, it's very interesting. But I think that the the point is 
that with con- when you are constrained is actually when you can be the most creative. Interesting. Um, so I remember speaking of creativity, uh, one of my counterparts, uh, someone who runs a large student organization asked me, I mean, genuinely, how, how do you come up with so many creative mm-hmm. ideas for the Atlas Society? And you describe creativity as a skill that can be learned, but I also think of it as a mindset that can be cultivated. And for me, it all comes back to uh, how we at the Atlas Society approach the philosophy of objectivism. Rather than treating it as some kind of closed dogma, uh, we see it as open, and that means we're more willing to think independently and take creative risks and uh, collaborate with people who aren't in lockstep with uh, all of our views. Um, So how do people constrain their creative potential uh, by fear of, making mistakes or coloring outside the lines <laughs> of what's been prescribed? Yeah, uh, I love this question because the first person that comes to mind is um, Spanx founder, uh, Sarah Blakely. And when she was starting her business, which is like she took pantyhose and cut the feet off of it to make shapewear, what we now know as shapewear, but at the time that didn't exist, um, she she said, you know, uh, I was an outsider. I I didn't know fashion at all. Like I I completely came in um, blind, but with my own experience. And so she said that she believes that every single person on the planet has had a million dollar idea in their life. The reason that most people haven't acted on that million dollar idea is because they ended up telling family and friends before it was ready, before they were ready to act on it. So those ideas never actually had the opportunity to develop into something meaningful. And she didn't tell anyone about Spanx until she already had everything ready. She had the patent, she had the legal entity, she had everything ready and set up to go. And that's when she told people because she didn't want to hear the remarks of this is stupid. If it was a good idea, it would already exist or like somebody would have already started it, all this stuff. So like you said, when you... Fear, the, the way to not fear what other people think is just to keep it to yourself until it's more mature and then tell people instead of letting them squash it before it's ready. Yeah, and I think also um, having enough self-esteem to not be so reliant so, on yeah. other people's evaluations of your work and your worth and your ideas. Um, and uh, and that is a, a confidence that I think is also born of experience. Um, and, you know, it can be a confidence born of having made mistakes and survived. So exactly. turning to that uh, now, uh, on, in your chapter on mental toughness, you use the example of David Goggins, former Navy SEAL and ultra distance uh, athlete, who argues that uh, we should not only manufacture hardship, uh, but seek it out on a daily basis. What? How does choosing the path (laughs) of most resistance uh, unlock hidden genius? Yeah. And, and, and if you know David Goggins' story, it's, it's fascinating. Um, he, he really built himself into this ultra athlete. 
And his point is that most of society is very sheltered, very soft, cannot handle these big life events that will inevitably knock you to your knees, right? So every single human will undergo some sort of really, really big hardship, uh, whether they like it or not, you'll lose your job, or you might lose a relationship, or someone close to you will probably die at some point. And if you are not resilient, and you're not used to dealing with these hardships, you'll, you'll, you might have, you know, a, a crisis, <laughs> um, you might not be able to go on. So his point is that by exposing ourselves to tiny moments of hardship every single day, you actually, he calls it callousing the mind, you create friction, so that when the big moments come, you're more prepared mentally, and in his case, physically. Um, and that's the thing, like most people think of that as um, physical things. So, oh, uh, I have a marathon coming up, I need to train every single day to prepare for this big event. But actually, if you think about it, you can apply this to if you really hate negotiating for a raise at work with your boss, don't wait until you have to negotiate your raise. But instead, today, go sell something on Facebook Marketplace and try negotiating with a person who wants to buy it. It's things like that where every single day by putting yourself in uncomfortable, even slightly uncomfortable situations can prepare you for the really, really uncomfortable situations. And uh, they will come. Uh, speaking of experience, you know, Nietzsche says uh, that which does not kill you makes you stronger, but it's not automatic. I really think that it's a, a choice. And I learned this the hard way um, when catastrophe came for me in the form of uh, my house burning down along with 55 others in our community. And I remember thinking, okay, I lost my house. What else can I lose? I could lose my job. I could lose my relationships. I could lose my health. So I focus not just on rebuilding this one thing, but on maintaining other things. Cause I was like, all right, I'm, I'm in, I've sunk, <laughs> I've sunk down from where I was. Uh, I need to get back up there so I can't sink down any, uh, further. So, um, when I looked around how, you know, different neighbors handled it, I you know, found not everybody uh, was able to be successful in, in doing that. And uh, I think that in retrospect, it even something that was a pretty traumatic thing prepared me. And I, you know, I mean, it's a horrible thing. I don't want it to happen to everybody. And, yeah. you know, I, I hate all of the, oh, at least this or the silver lining. But, uh, but one thing is that I do feel more prepared, uh, less attached for the next big thing, you know, whether mm -hmm. it is uh, the loss of a loved one or illness or whatever. So what are some hidden genius tactics uh, for leveraging loss to your longer term advantage and not getting yeah. stuck in that, that mindset? Yeah, I've always been fascinated how two people can go through a very similar experience in one it changes them in this way and the other person goes this way and it's completely different mindsets yet they went through the same experience. I think it's um, Esther Perel who uh, she's a therapist, couples therapist, psychotherapist. Her parents were both in the Holocaust and she says, she says something along the lines of there are those who lived and those who didn't die. So it's like a slight nuance, but like the ones who lived really went on to celebrate life and be thankful and, 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 
have these families and the ones who didn't die were kind of kept in the the prison of of the mind um, that they what they just survived was really awful so uh, i read this book it's called the choice it's written by a holocaust survivor named uh, edith eva eager and she in it she says that suffering is universal and there's two types of like victim mindset basically there's victimization which every person in this world will have been victimized at some point in their life she's like she defines this as you know your house burns down or um uh your the neighborhood bully or the the spouse that cheats on you or things that are outside of your control in a way that the world is victimizing you she's like that that's that's going to happen but then that's there's victimhood and that comes from the inside in which we <laughs> victimize our own selves um by thinking in these really negative thought loops which is blaming worrying uh just just a lot of negativity that we impose on ourselves and um i i have this quote somewhere i have to find it but basically she says something like we become our own jailers when we choose the confines of the victim's mind. Um, so if you work really hard not to give in to the self-imposed victimhood, you can, like you said, be like, okay, what can I lose? And then in how can I become more um, self-sufficient in a way? So one, one technique that I learned that I thought was really interesting, a lot of athletes do this, uh, but anybody can do this. It's that there's a difference between listening to yourself and talking to yourself. So when something bad happens, the first instinct is for us to be like, oh my God, how am I going to go on? This is horrible. I have no options. Uh, this is it. That's listening to yourself. When you're running a marathon and you start to kind of fall apart, you're like, oh, my leg hurts, my head hurts, my arm hurts, everything hurts. But then there's talking to yourself, which is, again, if you're if we're doing the marathon example, when you start talking to yourself, you're acting as like a self, like a coach to yourself. You're saying, okay, your leg hurts, but you have three more miles to go and then it's over. You don't have to think about this again. Your leg's not going to hurt forever, all this stuff. And a lot of, um, it, it's cool. I was watching these videos of football players. They attach, you know, mic microphones to them. And right before a game, they're like, all right, you got this. This is what you worked your whole life for. And they, they call themselves, like, I'd be like, Paulina, this is what you worked for. Like, they <laughs> talk to themselves like a coach. Um, so I think that that's so interesting to ask yourself, right now, am I listening to myself or am I talking to myself? All right. And in terms of listening and uh, reading some of the questions that uh, we've got quite a few coming from awesome. our audience, um, Jackson Sinclair was the first to the gate on Facebook. And he's asking Polina, looking at Bulgaria when you were born and now, um, have, have you gone back? Do you think it has improved? What's your uh, perspective? Yeah, I, I go back. I try to go back once a year. Um, but yeah, so, so we went last year. I now have, uh, two little kids. So I want them to see it because like you said, like you need, you need perspective. <laughs> and I think that grit is really hard to teach. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that anybody could have taught me the lessons that I learned from those early days being so unspeakably difficult, 
unless I, I went through them, right? Um, so I, I want like my own kids to go there, see what it's like, go, you know, see their grandparents, all this stuff and be like, yeah, not everybody lives like we do in the United States. And this is what they believe. Um, I think the most interesting thing to me when I go back now is that most people would think, oh, Paulina must feel like an outsider in the United States because she wasn't born here. This is a different culture, et cetera. And then she must feel like an insider in Bulgaria. But actually, I've learned that I now feel more like an outsider going to Bulgaria than I do here because people just think fundamentally differently. And it, it like the, the communism that went on for decades there, it does make a difference in people's mentality and the way they see the world. They're not as like rethinking as we are here they don't spend their time talking about ideas and whatever so it's like when I'm there it's totally different so I, I mean I, I love America I think people <laughs> know that um but I, I do enjoy like going there and seeing family and and wanting to expose my kids to children yeah well that dovetails into uh this question that we have from Candace Morena on Facebook uh, and I think you've already partly answered it. And that is, what do you think is something that was really helpful in your upbringing, but mm -hmm. is lacking in most young people growing up today? And maybe even how you might be applying that to your own kids. Yeah. Okay. So the biggest, I think the best thing my parents did, and my dad should be watching right now. I hope he is. <laughs> but um the best thing that they did was I had a lot of interests as a kid. So both of my parents were chemical engineers. Uh, they met in college and they were chemical engineers. So I thought that I would be some sort of scientist when I grew up, but it just did not come naturally to me. I did not like doing the experiments. I didn't like science. I didn't like any of it. I liked writing and I liked writing the lab reports. I liked writing the research papers. That That's what gave me life. Uh, but, um, so I, I knew that that was kind of an interest, but I didn't know what I wanted to do or anything, but the thing that they did that I don't think most parents do is that they let me try a bunch of things, even though they probably knew I might fail, but they still let me do them instead of telling me like, mm, but you're not good at that. Like, why would you do that? Just focus on this other thing that you're really good at. Um, so I tried everything. I, tried um, the performing arts thing at my high school, failed miserably, soccer, not the best, like all this stuff that I wanted to do. But eventually when you do a bunch of stuff like that, you hit on something that you're really good at and you like. For me, that was finding the newspaper in high school. Once I found that newspaper, I was very like an introverted kid. But suddenly when you have a job to go interview people, you're like, I'm a journalist. I can talk to anyone and you become a little bit more extroverted, whatever. Um, but you, you learn like once I found that I could pair my love for research and writing um, together and that was journalism, I was like, this is amazing. I can't believe people would pay me to do this. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I think just like letting your kids do an array of things, even though you think they might not be the best at it uh, is really, really great. All right, I'm um, going to take another one. We'll get back to our uh, other questions and we will come back to audience questions. But I, like I said, I have a lot of burning questions. Um, <laughs> On Instagram, Tasha Mollier asks, how do you maintain optimism with a 24-hour news cycle that is so negative? Do you just 
go on a news, try to avoid (laughs) the news? Or what do you do? So this is actually a central reason why I started my newsletter, The Profile, when I did. Uh, It was February 2017. And I was working at Fortune covering technology and news and whatever. Uh, But if you remember 2017, uh, there was a lot of clickbait and a lot of just things that weren't very interesting to me. Um, uh, Stories with so many anonymous sources, you lose track. Like it, it was just a bad time for journalism, I think. So to get out of that cycle, I started reading a lot of really deeply reported long form profiles. And I was like, at least you get some context and nuance about a person instead of reading these like, you know, 300 word clickbait stories. So when I started doing that, I was like, and I'm going to use this as a conversation starter with family and friends. So I started an email to send seven or eight really long form, interesting profiles I had read that week to family and friends. And, And we would talk about them. But then that email turned into my newsletter, The Profile. Uh, and so I, I kind of got out of that negativity loop by finding the thing that I really enjoyed, which was like deeply reported articles that give you context about a person beyond just they voted for this person, they're this type of person, whatever. Uh, so that's how. And I think I, I, I really do think that um, if you're unhappy with something, you can create something for yourself. It's the same thing with the people-focused learning. I was not happy with how I was being taught in school. So I like taught myself a way that worked. Interesting. All right. Well, getting back to your book, uh, in your chapter on leadership, you describe how when individuals or companies find themselves in a crisis, uh, creativity and experimentation are, are the first thing out the window, they, they freeze. And that really resonated with me because again, um, I remember during the spring of 2020 uh, when lockdown meant that all of our conferences and travel were upended by these uh, government edicts. We had a choice. Other organizations uh, essentially froze their operations and applied for government bailout uh, funds, which came with their own list of, of restrictions. Um, we took a different way. We rejected uh, government funding and embraced 2020 as the year of experimentation and innovation resulting in things like this podcast. Uh, so from your enormous research on successful leaders, what are some examples of those who got creative when the going got really tough? So I think the key is to not wait until there's like a black swan moment to get creative or reinvent. Uh, So the thing that I learned from Grant Ackett's, the chef I was talking about earlier, is like, okay, how is his restaurant so innovative year after year? It's the, the truth is that when most people hit on something successful, that success starts to breed complacency and they become complacent and they think they're always, because they're at the top now, they're always going to stay at the top. And that's obviously not the case. So I, so what Grant does with his team is he says every six months, I don't care what's going on in the world and I don't care how successful our menu is. We're just going to blow it up every six months. We're going to start from scratch, new menu, new, everything, new experience. And his team will be like, Grant, this is the best menu we've ever had. Like, people love this. Are you kidding me? Can we just keep this one part? And he's like, no, 
because if you're not constantly disrupting yourself, somebody else will come in and disrupt you. So it's like every six months, if you do that, yeah, if you do that every six months, then when the really big things happen, it doesn't matter because you're just doing what you've always done. Interesting. All right. Another totally new concept that I got from your book (laughs) was uh, this idea of ilyism. Honestly, I hadn't even heard of it before. So what is it and how can it be helpful um, in maintaining objectivity and overcoming the victim mindset? Yes, Uh, this is a really cool tool. Uh, It's actually, Iliism is more of like a literary device that's used, but you like therapists sometimes use it with their clients. Uh, Iliism is um, the act of referring to yourself in the third person. So I might be like, Paulina is moving back to New York City. She's so excited. It's like, why are you talking about yourself in the third person? That's weird. So it's generally not um, seen as a good thing. It makes you look kind of egotistical and grandiose and whatever. But um, athletes do it a lot. You, you've heard LeBron James say, you know, this is good for LeBron. Like, what are you talking about? You are LeBron. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> but the, the reason it's used is because a lot of people use that to create an alter ego. So um, a, lot of, a lot of athletes do this because they have kind of an alter ego on the field, uh, but it's a form of self-distancing. And self-distancing sometimes from your own self can give you a little bit um, of uh, space and to help you manage your emotions better. So for example, I used to be really, really introverted and really nervous speaking in front of people. Except when you are a reporter at Fortune magazine, you have to go interview people on stage in front of, you know, 300 people, let's say, how are you going to do that? And so I had to create like another version of myself where I'm like, I'm confident, I'm great. I'm, when I'm on stage, I'm speaking to people, even though that's not how I may be in real life. Um, we've seen this with uh, Beyonce. She created Sasha Fierce. Beyonce actually was not this like, powerhouse, very uh, extroverted. She was really, really shy and didn't like being in front of people, but that's her job. So she created this alter ego of like, okay, Sasha Fears is this kind of person, this kind of person. And then over time, those two entities get closer and you become that. Um, but uh, Iliism is interesting because it's, it's that like talking to yourself idea. When you are your own coach, you, you're talking to yourself as if you're another person. So it gives you a little bit of um, distance between, oh, I'm the victim, I'm whatever. And when you look at it from a distance, you're like, okay, but I, I can be this more confident, more logical, less emotional person. Right. Well, it really resonates with me because um, I remember after the board recruited me to run the Atlas Society and I needed to do a lot of reorganization. And I ended up hiring somebody that I had worked with like 10 years ago or more uh, when I was running a nutrition institute at Dole Food Company. So I I hired her and see her seeing me in this new role. She's like, where is my former boss? (laughs) What did you do with her? Because she remembered me as somebody who always had my door closed. I did not want to talk to anybody. I did not want to meet with anybody. And here I was, you know, giving speeches and giving interviews. And um, I think exactly the way that you described it for me, it's like acting. Yeah. (laughs) You know, yeah. And and even like acting, uh, you know, even though it's not like my default state, but even by 
pretending that I'm really this person that, you know, yeah. just loves getting up on stage and being in front of the camera. Um, I think it also begins to change you and expand, you know, it's like the fake it till you make it. So there you exactly. go. Um, and another gem uh, that uh, I found in your book was uh, you shared Mark Bertoli's four levels of Taoist leadership, which he described as the first level, your employees hate you. Uh, the second level, your employees fear you. The third level, your employees praise you. Uh, and then the fourth level is you're invisible because your organization takes care of itself. Is it fair to say that um, the best leaders find ways to make the rules obsolete or at least less pivotal in the long-term success of their organization? Yeah, and it's counterintuitive, right? Because everybody wants to be like, look, I'm this great CEO because if you take credit for everything, then you can go to your board and be like, look, the company can't operate without me, but that's actually bad <laughs> if you want longevity for the company itself. Um, so Mark uh, said, I interviewed him, I think it was two years ago or last year. He said, basically, the most exceptional leaders do two things. One, they, they kind of um, understand their employees' needs. And two, they get the hell out of the way. Uh, and the reason for that is exactly what I said. Like you want, if you ever sell your company, you want it to continue operating without you because you've trained everybody so well and everybody knows their role so well and can operate without you. Um, a good example of this is Spotify CEO, Daniel Ek. He, um, believes in this idea of servant leadership, where it's not a top-down uh, leadership style, it's kind of bottoms up. So he sees his role as CEO, not as you do this, you do that, but more of I'm here to listen to what the employees want to do and, and throw resources at them and help make it happen. So there was this group at Spotify that was working on this tiny project and they're really excited about it. So they're like, Daniel, can we, can we show you this? And he was like, okay. So they were like, okay, what if every person on Spotify could have a personalized playlist they could listen to? Um, he was like, I mean, it's okay. I, I think the idea is okay, but I don't think it's anything interesting or exceptional. Uh, but like, fine, feel, feel free to keep working on it. And then one day, Daniel Eck, the CEO, reads an article online saying that this thing was fully shipped to the public so now it's available on spotify he's like i didn't i did not know this was going to happen um <laughs> and he and he said he remembers reading the article and thinking oh my god this is going to be a huge disaster that playlist as many of you know became spotify's discover weekly which is like now its most loved feature but it, it says so much about the culture of the culture of that organization that those people didn't they they felt so confident working on it even after their boss wasn't that excited about the idea and shipping it to the public without his approval like i mean at most organizations you'd be fired but it just shows like spotify is very much like you know you make this company what it is i'm just here to like power the process so uh i think that's a really great example of how if you want longevity and success in the future, you have to put your company and your employees in a position where they can succeed without you. 
And yet, of course, there are limits because uh, <laughs> when the employees of Spotify said, oh, Joe Rogan, you know, we don't oh. want him. <laughs> That's uh, right. You know, they said, you know what? Sorry. Yeah. And <laughs> I think, I think like there's it, like, you know. th- th- there's also like values and fundamentals that the company is founded on. So like those, what is the saying? Like, write your values in stone and your opinions in sand, something like that. So like if your foundational value is we respect free speech and, and whatever, then there's no going away from that because you've stated that as your foundational value. Uh, that is a very good distinction. And speaking of, of journalism and free speech, a gentleman named Ivo Marinoff. Oh, yes. Your dad is here. <laughs> and he says, Polly, you are a rebel. Uh, in your newspaper <laughs> at the University oh, of Georgia. I... <laughs> yeah. What did he say? That's that's what he says. Oh, he that's says, how he said. You're you're a rebel. <laughs> it's 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 over free speech essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was um I was the editor in chief of uh University of Georgia's newspaper when um University of Georgia's newspaper, the students, it's completely uh the students have editorial control. So there are no adults, there are no board members, nobody is, there's just advisors, but the students have final say. And in 2012, when I was editor in chief, uh, this rogue board member came in and tried to take that away. But it was something that the students had fought really hard over in the 70s. And I was like, that's not going to happen under my, my tenure. <laughs> um, so if you want to do that, I will no longer be uh, editor-in-chief so I stepped down and then the whole entire staff also stepped down um, and then it, like caught the attention of the New York Times and it became this big walkout um, because the students wanted to retain editorial control but ultimately we worked it out and today uh, the students at the University of Georgia's newspaper still have editorial control but it was like it's it's again like values and ethics you have to know what it is even though when I was making the decision at the time people told me you you know, uh, you just have to do what they tell you because in the real world, you would get fired if you don't do what they like. But I don't want to work somewhere where my ethics are being questioned. So I'll just leave. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, Okay. (laughs) I'll take a couple of more questions. Uh, Alan Norwich on Facebook asks, what do you think was the lowest point in your career and how did you overcome it? The lowest point was when I graduated um, from college because I had been the editor of my college paper. I had interned at places like CNN and USA Today. I, you know, had I had so many things that I did in college where professors told me, you've done all the right things. You've checked all the right boxes. You will 100% get, you know, this amazing job at a media organization. But when I graduated in 2013, media was going through one of its cycles and nobody was hiring. Instead, actually, people were getting laid off and losing their jobs. So I was like, well, (laughs) what do I do? And the reason it was the lowest point in my career and is actually lowest probably in personal life as well, because up until that point, I had always had an identity. I was always a student. I was always an editor, an intern. Like I had um, learned to attach my identity to external things that I didn't control, but they were usually titles. And when I graduated with no job and had to move back home and live on my mom's couch, I was like, 
oh no, like, who am I? Like, what, what, if, if I'm not, if I don't have a job, like, what am I supposed to do? So it made me reflect on this idea of there comes a time where you need to bet on yourself and learn that your identity doesn't, isn't attached to something external that you could lose and never do that. When I started my newsletter, The Profile, that was the first time where I was like, ooh, I'm starting to really wrap my identity around writer and editor at Fortune Magazine because that gives you immediate respect when you walk into a room. Now, with The Profile, it's just Paulina. It's just me. But you learn that the most powerful thing in life is that your name and like is your identity because it's the ultimate thing that you protect your reputation. If you lose the reputation that your name has, that's really, really dangerous. Um, so like when Oprah walks into a room, she's just Oprah. Nobody's like, so what do you do for work? You know? <laughs> um, but, uh, but so, so that was really low because I was like, I don't know who I am, but it taught me the big lesson of never attach your identity to something you could lose. I love it. All right. We'll take two more questions. We'll get quick answers to them. And then okay. I want to get to my last question for you on uh, Instagram. Georgios Alexopoulos uh, is asking, do you think we can move uh, mainstream news away from clickbait practices? Are you optimistic or is, is media just going to evolve in a, uh, is journalism media going to evolve in a different way? I actually think with you're seeing you're seeing that uh, what's being rewarded with the rise of Substack in the free mm -hmm. press, these are independent uh, journalists who have left places like the New York Times and Fortune and Forbes and whatever started their own thing, and people are showing that they value their work by backing it with their dollars. So it's no longer like advertising revenue; it's you know subscription revenue. I pay for this because I find value in it. And I, I really do think that um, that's what's going to become rewarded. Of course, people are people and they're like, I like salacious headlines that tell me about Bill Ackman and Harvard and whatever. But like that stuff is, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that the more that you read and the more that you evolve in your thinking, you seek out like meatier, better uh, reported things. And my hope is that with uh, things like my newsletter, The Profile and, and things like the free press and what you guys are doing, that people actually um, get used to paying for really well-reported, long-form conversations, long-form interviews uh, and, and, and written features just as much as, you know, all the riffraff. Because, I mean, sensational news has been, this has happened in the United States before. It's it's kind of part of the history, but it mm -hmm. always it goes in cycles, and then people get really tired of it. It becomes really dangerous for society, and then it swings back. Yes, and I I like that, and um, so we're going to make sure that we put the link to the profile if people yeah. want to pony up for a subscription. There, we're not quite a subscription <laughs> model, of course. We're a nonprofit. So uh, I see a lot of our regular friends um, that are here and asking questions. Maybe you're new to the Atlas Society, but our model is uh, through tax deductible donations. So I'm going to mm -hmm. ask the gremlins to put a link to the <laughs> donate page in the chats as well. Um, hey, you can start your career as a philanthropist with a $5 donation, feel good about yourself and feel good about uh, what the Atlas Society is doing. Um, all right, and I'm not gonna 
give you this question uh, that we don't really have time for, but uh, Thomas Guzman is asking about how you instill uh, grit into kids without suffering. Um, he can't imagine his kids having his kind of grip, but it came at a cost. So Thomas, um, I'm going to also ask uh, our gremlins behind the scene to throw into your chat um, a few links to some of the previous interviews uh, that we have done with people like Lenora Skenazy um, and others who are experts on parenting. You might want to check those out. Um, but meanwhile, Polina, uh, I wanted to um, say that, you know, as someone running an organization uh, dedicated to promoting reason and objectivity, uh, your seventh cha chapter, Clarifying Your Thinking, was my favorite. <laughs> uh, and you describe how the desire for acceptance by your tribe or the search for status um, by embracing so-called luxury beliefs are inimical to objective thought. What are some examples of that? Oh, it's so good. Um, so the Rob Henderson uh, is, is he's an author um, and he came up, he coined this term luxury beliefs. And the whole idea is that these are the ideas and opinions of the wealthy that actually um, give them status with other wealthy people, but inflict costs on everybody else. So there's ideas like monogamy is outdated. That's really like fun and sexy to say to other elite college kids that will gain you, you know, social cred, but it's actually very dangerous for people who grow up <laughs> in not great situations um, in single parent households and all that kind of stuff. Or defund the police. That's very um, great to say if you're wealthy and you can afford private security or you live in a neighborhood that is very well surveilled um, and safe, but it's actually not great for people who need the police and they live in not a safe neighborhoods. So it's kind of like um, people used to show status with designer clothing and handbags and things like that. Now they show status with their opinions. Uh, so it's like luxury beliefs. Um, and um, and uh, I, I like that you said that that was your favorite chapter because that is the most underrated chapter in the whole book. People have never asked me about it and I love it. It was my favorite because I really learned a lot while writing it. Um, and if you know me, you know, I'm obsessed with the idea of people who join cults. <laughs> and I love that everyone's always like, I would never do that. And I would never join a cult until you do. Uh, because the it, it's, it's, they they manipulate you using a very much like emotion and, and, and things like that because you're not thinking clearly and you're not logical and you're not a rational person. They, they kind of brainwash you into not being a rational person. So um, there's this woman, she her name is Julia Galef, and she talks about how there's the idea that you can approach the world as a soldier or a scout. And hmm. a soldier's, yeah, like a soldier's um, mindset is to defend, to fight, to win. That's ultimately what they want to do. But a scout is out there to like survey the terrain and gather facts and like take in information. That's kind of the mindset that you want to be to be a rational person. Um, and there's she she says that you need to celebrate being objective instead of being right uh, because you know you you 
you should kind of congratulate yourself in being able to argue as dispassionately as you can um, than just being right. Uh, and because I think what a lot of us do is we go into an argument already knowing what the other person will say based on who they are, especially in today's like super polarized world. Um, you see somebody and you're like, I know what they're going to say or what their message is going to be. And uh, her thing is, if you could picture those same words coming out of the mouth of somebody who looked totally different, are you more likely to listen and think about what they're saying versus just judging them based on what they look like? And that that's, I think the ultimate key to being objective and rational is like, I'm going to use the scientific method in my own life and, and really criticize um, what the person's saying, but also uh, criticize my own thinking and, and just constantly ask questions. Great. Well, um, another of my favorite publications is our founder, David Kelly's Seven Habits of Highly Objective People. So um, mm. we're going to get your mailing address and we're going to awesome. send that to, to you. Um, and another gem that you also shared in that chapter. So objectivists out there, get the book. Thank chapter you. seven. <laughs> Go to chapter seven. <laughs> Uh, definitely, if you want to go straight to what for us is is the dessert. Um, but again, I also really love the uh, the, the chapter on creativity. Um, and, and I love the point that you made when talking about objective thought, which was the greatest obstacle to discovery is not mm. ignorance. It is um, the illusion of knowledge. It is uh, the dogmatic certainty um, that is actually a sign not of intellectual strength, but but of weakness. So uh, really enjoyed this, enjoyed learning about you um, and uh, and your story. And we're going to keep watching you because I have <laughs> a feeling that you have some more uh, great chapters in your career ahead. So thank, thank you, you so much, much Paulina. Thank you. And thanks. Thanks everyone for uh, joining us, including uh, Polly's dad. And um, if you enjoy this, again, as I mentioned, uh, if you enjoy the work of the Atlas Society, please consider supporting our work with a tax deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And then you can join me next week. Uh, attorney Bobby Ann Flower Cox is uh, joining us to discuss her historic lawsuit against New York State Governor Kathy Hochul uh, and the unconstitutional, quote, isolation and quarantine procedures regulation during um, the COVID-19 lockdown. So we'll see you then. Thanks. <laughs>